Welcome to the Safe Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maria Lee, General Practitioner and Medical Advisor in the health regulation sector. I analyze medical errors and clinical incidents for a living. And along the way, I've learned a lot about the principles and the mechanics of safe practice, which I'm hoping to share with you in this podcast. I hope you stay tuned. And if you learn something, please pay it forward and share your knowledge with other clinicians. That way, pod by pod, we can build a safer healthcare system together. Of course, the content and opinions expressed in this podcast are entirely my own and are not the views of any of the organisations or bodies with which I am affiliated. So without further ado, let's get stuck into some safe practice. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Safe Practice Podcast. Now, in episode 12, I introduced the concept of acknowledging our limits and the importance of asking for help early. And I explored this in episode 15 of the podcast, where I interviewed RMO Dr. Jade Bevan and got her perspective as a JMO. Today, I have with me Dr. Anne Atkins, Surgical Registrar, to further enrich our discussion on this topic by providing a registrar perspective. Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for giving me your time today. Yes, and thank you for having me, Maria. So, Anne, would you like to introduce yourself and your interest in this topic? So, as Maria introduced at the start, I'm a surgical registrar and obviously patient safety is a huge part of what we do. The JMOs have a huge role in that, but we are usually their first port of call as registrars when something goes wrong. A bit more about me. Maria actually met me through my own podcast, um, You're Kidding Right? So that is a paediatric medicine and surgery podcast that my colleague, Dr. Freya Bleethman and I started in 2020 when I was still a paediatric trainee. So I've got a really broad range of experience. Um, I did peds for a couple of years, but then I jumped ship later on to try my hand at surgery and I haven't looked back since. So that's a little bit about me. Fantastic. And for those of you who missed it, her podcast is called You're Kidding, Right? Y-O-U apostrophe R-E kidding right question mark. Is that right, Anne? Yes, that's right. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, you can at your kidding right doctors. No, no punctuation marks or anything, just your kidding right doctors. And you can catch up on what Freya and myself are doing. Anne has had a podcast for a lot longer than I have. Highly recommended. And when I first had the idea of starting a podcast I actually reached out to you and asked for your advice and um so and you're part of the reason you're even on this show wow (laughs) what a full circle (laughs) moment that's right um so should we get into the guts of it yes we should we've got a couple of scenarios prepared and this is scenario one jack is a gp and Jack is seeing a patient to discuss the results of her ultrasound. The ultrasound was ordered by a colleague for a lump on the patient's ankle, and the report concluded that the lump was actually a large sebaceous cyst. Now, Jack explains this diagnosis to the patient and reassures her that if the cyst were bothersome, it could be removed with minor surgery. The patient, upon hearing this, immediately asks, hey, can you remove it for me today? Uh, Jack hesitated at this point. He had previously excised a small BCC from someone's back, but he'd never excised a sebaceous cyst or anything from the ankle before. 
However, the patient was quite insistent, and so despite his reservations, Jack agreed and prepped the patient for immediate excision of her sebaceous cyst. Now, within minutes of starting the procedure, Jack felt out of his depth. Uh, The cyst was surprisingly difficult to excise, and Jack came across structures that he didn't recognise, which made him nervous. At one point, he thought he actually hit a nerve with his scalpel, and he swore audibly. About an hour into the procedure, the patients were starting to ask Jack, why is this taking so long? Uh, There was blood everywhere and Jack's hands were shaking by this point. Eventually, on the verge of panic, he called in his practice nurse to assist him. The practice nurse immediately called in one of the other GPs who did a lot of procedural work and skin excisions and that particular colleague was able to complete the excision and suture the patient back up. About a month later, Jack receives a formal complaint from the patient alleging that Jack attempted a procedure that he clearly didn't know how to perform. On reflection, Jack admitted that he had probably overestimated his own surgical skill and he enrolled in a course on minor procedures to upskill. Now, so that's the entirety of the scenario. And what do you think of this case and what can we learn from it? Oh, geez. Ankle is a pretty tricky spot. It's something that takes a bit of preoperative planning um, in terms of where you're going to make your incisions and how you're going to close it. However, having said that, this isn't about bagging him out. Everybody has gaps in their skills, but at the end of the day, he probably shouldn't have been pressured into doing a procedure on the spot. And I think that when he first felt out of his depth, he could have asked for help earlier. So he was an hour in. Um, He probably could have asked for help earlier. I think Jack needed to acknowledge his own limitations. I agree with a lot of what you said. Um, If we look past the skill, the thing that would have saved Jack, even in the absence of skill, would have been the acknowledgement of the limits of his scope. Absolutely. If you hesitate and something in your brain is telling you, hey, this ain't a good idea, it's so important to listen to that. Mm. The take-home lesson here is that Jack could have acknowledged his limits at multiple points during this scenario, and at any of those points, if he had asked for help, the outcome may have been different Mm. because there is absolutely no glory in continuing to do a bad job. And no patient is going to thank you for eventually blundering through. Yes. Ultimately, most patients, although they might be time poor, would probably appreciate it if you just said, I don't really have time today, or I think it's important that I refer you to someone else. Yeah. I mean, you would be able to speak to this as a surgical registrar. Have you seen instances where the doctor who is operating has reached out for assistance midway through a procedure? Uh, Lots of times. Um, And I actually really look up to the consultants who call each other in. I don't think there's any shame at all in calling for help. And sometimes it takes those shakes away because the responsibility is shared at that point. And I don't think any patient would think any less of you for calling for help because at the end of the day, you're doing it for their safety. Absolutely. And I can speak from the perspective of the patient. I've been in a position where someone was trying to do a procedure on me and then midway through the procedure, they looked up and said, 
I'm so sorry, I need to call someone in to help me. And my immediate reaction is do not be sorry. I would much rather you do that mm. than try to struggle through something that you're not comfortable doing by yourself. And you can see that in that moment, the, the, the thing that they're feeling is embarrassment. Um, but the thing that I as the patient was feeling was gratitude. Thank God you didn't try and fumble through when uh, you don't feel comfortable. And I think that's really important. People are actually very understanding that you might need to call for help. I don't think it matters what level you are. Getting an esteemed colleague in to have a look, I think most people would respect and appreciate that. And it's better to do it before you get all flustered as well. Absolutely, because once you get all flustered, your brain is in fight or flight mode. You're not actually thinking logically. So recognize those early warning signs that you are flustered and say, okay, let's just call for the cavalry now before I completely lose situational awareness. That's right. And to your point that you respect consultants who ask for help, I think that's a really important point to make. Because I don't want anyone listening to think that we are targeting solely JMOs and registrars when we're talking about acknowledging limits. Consultants need help just as much as JMOs need help. It might be a different level of help, but no one is an island and no one knows everything. And the people who are safest are the people who don't wait until it's too late or until it's definitely a disaster before they ask for help. So that's the end of scenario one. Um, and do we have another scenario? We certainly do. And this one is a bit more up my alley in terms of what I'd be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so at 11 p.m. on a night shift, a junior surgical registrar, let's call her Laura, is called to review a patient with diverticulitis in ED. When Laura saw the patient, she was struck by how unwell she looked and... When she examined the CT images, they looked like uncomplicated diverticulitis. There was no on-site radiologist to discuss the images with and no on-site surgeon either. Everyone had gone home for the day, which is always what happens, by the way, as a surgical witch. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Um, so Laura debated keeping the patient on IV antibiotics, IV fluids, add on analgesia until the morning and just see how she goes. The factor swaying Laura towards this plan was that the on-call surgeon had had a marathon day in theatres and deserved an uninterrupted night's sleep. But she could not ignore the niggling voice in her head that said, this patient looks sick. I don't know why or what to do. Am I missing something? I should probably call the consultant. Through gritted teeth, Laura called her consultant at midnight and the consultant logged in remotely and identified a couple of localised locules of free gas on the CT, which Laura had missed. The patient had a microperforation. Considering the CT didn't look too bad, the consultant suggested a reassessment in the morning. I'd just like to jump in here and say that although it sounds really bad that this junior registrar has missed a couple of locules of free gas, this is a subtle finding. I don't want this poor junior registrar to be judged poorly for this without any sort of reporting facilities on site. It is really tricky. Oh, definitely. I'm certainly not judging Laura for her inability to pick up some tiny locules of free gas in an entire CT abdomen pelvis. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a few hours later, Laura noticed that the patient's resting pulse had gone up to 140. By now it was 2 a.m., 
And given that Laura had already woken her consultant once that night, she wondered whether she should wait it out until the surgical ward round at 7am to hand over the patient, especially since the consultant had already made a plan. Even though she felt extremely embarrassed about waking the consultant up a second time, Laura did call her boss and voiced her concern that the patient looked to be deteriorating and was now hemodynamically compromised. Based on the phone call, the consultant came into the hospital and took the patient to theatre at 3am. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that scenario. Um, I guess the question that's pertinent to our listeners is, what can we learn from it? I mean, I have to say that's a pretty classic Sir Dredge situation. I think that the big thing to learn from it is that it's important to seek help even when we're embarrassed or we don't want to be a nuisance. Most consultants understand that their job is to be on call. So the boss isn't going to thank you in the morning if you sat on a patient who is deteriorating and you didn't call them earlier. Um, if at any point I'm hesitating to call a consultant, I'll look at the patient in front of me and think, well, this phone call is for the patient. Even if the consultant doesn't feel there's any further management needed at this stage, I need to call for the patient. That's a very good point. And that is, um, that is safe. Yes. Well, that is true. That is safe. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. I was talking to a cardiologist about this and he said something I'll never forget. He said, in medicine, we focus so much on excellence that we forget about safety because safety isn't sexy. You know, it's not like you can put that on your CV. I was a really safe doctor. Um, everyone wants to say, oh, I've learned all the latest skills and gadgets and I can operate with a robot. And, you know, no one will pat you on the back saying my entire career, I've been super safe um, because it's just not it's not the sexy thing to do. But People don't complain about doctors for being not excellent because they're not in the top 1%. What triggers poor outcomes and complaints is a safety issue. I was left in an unsafe situation and now look at my poor outcome. So I think in medicine we actually need to shift that dial and acknowledge that only 1% of us can be in the top 1% and that not everyone can be the best thing ever but all of us can be safe. And being safe, it's level one of the building. If you don't walk past that level, you can't get to level two or three or four. And so before you strive for excellence and eminence, first strive for safety. I wanna also go back to one of the points that you raised, which is this fear in trainees of appearing to be a nuisance or of mm. bothering um, their senior doctors uh, at an unsociable hour. And I think the thing to say to that is, firstly, to normalise it, that this fear is universal. It's not just you. The second thing to normalise is that everyone does it. That same consultant on call has probably had calls from other people during that shift. You might not be the person waking them up. They might already be awake. And even if they weren't, you wouldn't be the only person who would be calling them that night and also taking them back to their own training, they would have done the same thing to their consultant. But I think the really, really important message to hammer home is that you're not being a nuisance, okay? The point of your call is that you are trying to do something for a patient and if you don't clarify what you're trying to clarify now, that patient may potentially come to harm. And if we take it from that perspective, you're advocating for someone's health and well-being. On some occasions, you're advocating for their life. 
So it's a bit of a reframe, but I think it's an important reframe. You're not being a nuisance. You're being an advocate for someone who needs your help. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I often find the grey area patients are the hardest because a sick patient, that's an automatic trigger to call a boss. A well patient, you're naturally not going to call. It's the ones that sit in the middle where it makes it Mm -hmm. a bit harder. Absolutely. Do I call? Don't I call? Do I need help or can I just hold the fort until 7am? I want to speak to a couple of points that might make this decision making easier. My personal philosophy is that if I am debating whether to call, I will call. And the reason is because my brain has asked me this question for a reason. And that reason is because I have reached the limit of my knowledge or skill in this area. So any decision I make from that point onwards is made from a position of incomplete knowledge or incomplete skill. The second thing is that I think there's a lot of anchoring on the fact that if I make a call, I have to be doing something heroic. In other words, if I call a consultant at 3am, the advice I get must be that, oh, you must change the management and therefore you will save that patient's life. I want to point out that there is value in reassurance. Mm. There is absolute value in calling consultant and for that consultant to reassure you so that you are not panicking until 7am and potentially that patient isn't panicking until 7am. So just like every time you go to ED, you don't have to dive to make that visit worthwhile. Um, Not every time that you call a consultant has to result in some sort of life-saving measure. There is enormous value in just having the reassurance that it's okay to continue as is, or it's okay to just make minor adjustments. Um, Yes. And the last point I want to make is often there are other people watching what you're doing. There are nursing staff, there are junior medical staff, potentially even other people in different teams. And there is enormous value in modeling the ability to acknowledge your limits and to ask for help early. Because the more we see other people do things, the more we think it's okay for us to do them. Absolutely. Just like you said, you really respect those consultants who are able to reach out and say, can you help me out? Similarly, you could very well be doing the same thing for someone else. You might sit here and think, oh my God, I'm looking like such an idiot calling someone at 3am not knowing what to do. Whereas the intern who's watching you, they might go, oh my God, look, it's okay for Anne to do this. So maybe next time it's okay for me to do it. So you might be a role model and you may not know it. Well... That is a wonderful thought, isn't it? (laughs) These discussions are really important because at the end of the day, registrars usually are the people holding the fort at night. Um, But I think it's important to have discussions with people at every level to normalise things like calling for help and limiting the chances of an adverse outcome. Mm, Absolutely. This scenario with Laura, despite her reservations, what Laura did for this patient was wonderful. It's not about your level of skill or knowledge. It's about what you do when you hit that limit because we will all hit that limit at some stage. And whether your practice is safe or not, and whether the outcome is good or poor, may very well hinge on your ability to step outside of your own ego or step outside of your own discomfort or embarrassment and ask for help. Absolutely. And I think that it is important to be assertive and and clear in your communication. If you're calling someone for help, you need to be very clear because if the consultant doesn't understand what you're saying, 
or you're not giving them the full picture, then they might give you the wrong plan. I'll go to an example from when I was a resident. Um, It was a patient on another team. The resident on that team had to call the infectious diseases physician about a patient who had grown a staph aureus in their blood culture. And the ID physician gave her the plan, just five days of oral Keflex and hangs up the phone. So the surgeon on that team was a bit like, oh, for blood culture, just oral antibiotics for five days. That's all a bit weird, isn't it? She said, no, that's what he said. And it was actually the intern on that team who um, said to that resident, are you sure that the ID boss knows about the blood culture? Or did you just tell them about the wound infection? And the residents still defended their phone call. The intern wasn't sure Mm. what to do. They asked me and I said, probably just call the ID consultant back and make sure they're aware of it. So Mm. the ID boss is recontacted. The intern said, I'm really sorry to bother you with the same patient, but were you aware of the blood culture? Well, the plan changed dramatically. So obviously with Staph aureus need to look at things like echocardiogram, long line. And I think that that was another pertinent example of how we don't want to bother people. The surgeon in that example, he was like, it seems like an odd plan to me, but I really trust this ID physician and I'm sure he knows better than me. And so that intern, I mean, you know, with a little bit of reassurance from myself, that intern potentially saved the patient from sepsis, potential infective endocarditis, things like that. So I think that it's important to put aside that fear of bothering somebody it's important to seek help even when we're embarrassed or we don't want to be a nuisance speak up even when you're feeling afraid yeah there was a point that you made earlier that i want to circle back around to you said it's important to have all the information on hand when you present to the consultant just so that there's no information missing and the consultant is able to make an informed decision i'm actually going to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here i think there is a lot of pressure on trainees to give that perfect presentation and it's very unrealistic without a lot of experience when you're stressing about what to present I think there is value in saying to yourself, hey, my presentation doesn't need to be perfect. I just need to convey the urgency or the concern. So I would be perfectly okay with someone ringing me and saying, I'm so sorry, I'm a bit flustered because I'm very worried about this patient and I don't know exactly what is happening, so I need your input. I'll try my best to tell you what I think I know, but if there's something that I'm not giving you that you think is really important information, can you please ask me? From a position of humility, I think a lot of people would respond very well to that. Yeah, just to be clear, when I said earlier about presentations, a lot of the time we have a diagnosis in surgery, but obviously it makes it harder when you actually don't know what's wrong with the patient. And that's when you absolutely, if you're worried, you should lead with, I'm worried. There needs to be some sort of headline, whether it's I'm worried and I don't know what's going on, or sorry to wake you at 2am, I have a 57-year-old with a perforated viscous. I think at the end of the day, I mean, if you have a diagnosis, you should lead with that. But otherwise, if you don't know, absolutely, you should open with, I don't know what's wrong with this patient, but I am concerned about them. I think that what you were saying earlier about uh, leading with, I'm sorry, 
that I'm really flustered. I'm just really worried about this patient. I think that that's a really important thing to be able to say as well. I think that's a really good line to keep in the memory bank. Mm. And also, if I'm not giving you the information you need, please ask me. Yes. Uh, I just remember asking for a consult from a registrar and he made me cry. He's like, I cannot believe you didn't give me this vital piece of information. I remember thinking, I actually didn't even know that was an important inf- piece of information for you. Like, mm. uh, sure, as, as the whatever ology registrar you do this day in, day out, as an intern or a resident, I had no clue that that was important. I want people to take that pressure off themselves for thinking that, God, I, I'm dumb if I didn't get all the information. You're not dumb, you're there to learn. This is part of the learning. And it's not your specialty. I mean, at the end of some referrals, I do try to give them a little bit of teaching. And like, that's normally really well received because normally these poor interns and residents probably just get berated without any sort of constructive feedback. So I do try to give them a little bit of teaching. But yeah, obviously while you're just berating somebody for not knowing something, they're not learning from that. In fact, they're just getting more and more flustered and upset. Whereas if you teach them... I mean, I'll often find that the next time that same intern calls with another referral, they've actually learnt from that. Mm. Oh, and that would be so appreciated. The counterpoint is that if you're if a person berates someone, that person who's been berated may actually hesitate before they mm. ask for help again. They may extrapolate and say, look, in future, if I do not have every single tiny piece of information, I cannot ask for help. So then they might then start delaying asking for help. And before you know it, they've delayed the safe course of action. That's right. And that's not good. So Anne, we've now had two very instructive scenarios. But if I had to ask you to give us your take home messages from this episode, what would that be? What would they be? Some of the big take-home points are that it's important to acknowledge your limits, even if it's an uncomfortable experience. Most of us as doctors have been pretty successful in some way, like academically, and we're capable people. So sometimes it might seem confronting to have to acknowledge that you do in fact have limits. At the end of the day, you need to think about the patient in front of you. So am I the best person to be making this decision? Am I the best person to be doing this procedure? I think it's important to know that asking for help does not in any way reflect poorly on you and most patients in fact will appreciate it it's really easy you know in the brightness of the day but at two o'clock in the morning it might become a question to you like do I call or not I think that what Maria was saying earlier about um, if there's anything in your head that says should I call you call I think that that's an important take-home point as well I think that it's also important to trust your gut is the other thing too so in, in Jack's scenario he just had that bad feeling before he did the procedure in Laura's case she knew something wasn't quite right and they both well Laura acted on that feeling and we saw what happened with Jack when he didn't act on it and I think the other thing particularly in Jack's case is don't be pressured into things that you don't want to do or you don't feel ready to do because it could result in a poor outcome. So I think those are the three big take-home points from the discussions we've had. Those are some great take-home messages and we would all do well to abide by those regardless of our level of training or seniority. I just want to make that very clear. These principles apply to everyone, whether you're training or whether you've finished your training. 
So, Anne, we're nearing the end of the episode, and I really just wanted to say thank you for coming on this episode and giving us your incredible insights, experience, and your sense of empathy. Great messages like this warrant repeating. So you can't actually say things like this too many times because the ability to acknowledge our limits is such a foundational part of being a safe practitioner that it cannot be overemphasized. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time um, and your expertise. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really enjoyable. I hope that everybody gets something out of this episode. Okay, so this is the point in the podcast where I ask you for help. If you found the information in this episode valuable, please share it with your colleagues. Because the more of us that know about these tips and tricks and principles of safe practice, the better it is for everyone, both practitioners and consumers of the healthcare system. And so sadly, that's all the time we have for today. I'm Dr. Maria Lee, and this is Dr. Anne Atkins. And until next time, stay safe.